You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Local voices, local conversations. Welcome back to Napa Valley College Now. You know, the cliche often holds that it's rocket science and quantum physics that are some of the most complex things to understand. In fact, though, school funding in the state of California may not only rank right up there, but may even be more complex. Whether it's K-12 or community college or the UC system, the complexity of funding in California for education is truly a challenge. And yet there are a few things more important for our kids and for the future of the state. Here at Napa Valley College, the job of understanding all of this and making the proverbial economic trains run on time is our guest today, Janine Hawk. She's the Vice President of Administrative Services for Napa Valley College, and it's my pleasure to have her here in the studio today. Janine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Great to have you here. First of all, tell us a little bit about uh, how long you've been here and what brought you here. Well, what brought me here is Ron Kraft. Um, I'm actually an interim vice president at this point. Um, And after having about 20 years of higher education experience, uh, 18 years of which have been in community colleges, both in California and Oregon, um, I took some time off at the uh, middle of last year to finish my doctoral dissertation. And so was ready to kind of get back into the workforce and this opportunity presented itself. Um, So decided to take Ron up on his offer and see how I could help Napa. (laughs) And talk a little bit about the challenges of education funding in California, and we'll talk about certainly more of the specifics, but is it more complex than it needs to be? I mean, every time I try and wrap my head around it, and I have for years, particularly in the K-12 area, I just wind up with a headache. I mean, I get it, but it's just so much more complex, it seems, than it needs to be sometimes. Well, I think that's probably true of funding anything anymore. Um, The kind of the political layers, um, you know, it's like peeling back an onion. Um, There's so many elements to any any funding um, uh, proposal nowadays um, in terms of making sure that all interests are being addressed, that all you know, goals and and strategies are being addressed and that the tactics related to those goals and strategies are somehow funded at some fundamental level. And and in all cases, they're not, actually. Um, And so oftentimes we we have requirements, mandated requirements, that we have no funding for. But I think generally speaking, the budgets try and and, uh, kind of address these um, tactics that we have developed either in the K-12 level or at the community college level that help support the the mission of, of... of either K-12 education or community colleges. So it it becomes very complex. What is the nexus between looking at community college funding and funding for the California State University system, the UC system? Are they linked to each other in, in fundamental ways? Well, they are as part of the Master Plan for Education that was established by the legislature in 1965. So, and they created, um, you know, three tiers of education, essentially. The highest level, um, in their opinion, being the UC system, being the uh, the research university, um, and created funding at about three times the level of community college. Of course, it's limited access. Um, then came the CSUs um, and relatively um, less uh, kind of privileged in terms of entry, but still restrictive in terms of numbers of students. And while they've 
uh, added additional campuses, it still is restrictive and they turn away, you know, thousands of students per year. Funding there is at about, <clears throat> it's less than the UC level, but still about twice as much as the community college level. And then the community college level um, basically is what batted cleanup in terms mm -hmm. of the master plan. So uh, people that didn't have access to higher education at the UC or CSU level were guaranteed access at the community college level and again funded it at a dramatically different rate. Now the, the challenge with that is these are the students that are the most needy. About 80% of students come to us um, at less than a college level. Not only are we um, moving them through, a, 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 we're moving them through a pre-collegiate level as well as a college level to get them to completion. Average time to completion is somewhere around six years because so many of them are starting in that pre-collegiate level. So really, the the funding in some ways is is just backwards. You know, where really the students that are most needy cost us the most to support, and we really should be getting more funding, not less. Um, but that has how the architects of the Master Plan for Education initially set it up. Has there been any talk about changing that or restructuring that in any way as more and more emphasis gets put on, a, on community colleges and more and more of the realization of the things that you're talking about? You know, there, there are lots of talk about it, um, not so much action. Um, the 50-year anniversary of the Master Plan for Education, the California Master Plan, um, there was a Senate uh, subcommittee um, that actually looked at the Master Plan. Um, at the community college level, there was the community college task force that was developed to look at um, kind of the funding elements within um within the system, um, but neither tackled the funding issue. Um, it was really just a lot of changes around the edges. Some talk about ac accountability, um, which has resulted in a few changes, not so much in funding, but in focus, um, but primarily the funding structure and the relative funding structure between the three entities has continues to remain the same. Talk a little bit about that structure, particularly as it relates to community colleges, because one of the things that, and, and again, this relates to the complexity of it, I mean, one of the things we heard many times during the debate about the bond issue and any time these funding issues come up is that, well, you know, the kids are paying tuition, that should cover it, there's money from the state, why isn't that taking care of everything? Yeah. Well, as part of the Master Plan for Education, one of the things I, I didn't mention was that Tuition is actually free for California community colleges. So anything that students pay are actually related to fees right now. So there, it is a tuition-free system. So in some ways, um, the president's current initiative around free community college, free tuition, wouldn't necessarily change anything in California because we already have free tuition. Um, students just pay a variety of fees associated with their attendance. Um, so, you know, the... The complexity of that is there's not really local control. So everything is established at the state level. Um, we've seen currently the fight between the uh, president of the UC system and the governor relative to raising tuition um, in that system. Um, we would certainly um, hear similar um, cries if the community colleges were advocating for raising uh, fees, which were not at this time. I mean, I think just in general, the community college system and, and all of the colleges in it support keeping, you know, tuition free and fees low. Um, and so at, at, you know, there's been very few points in history when um, the colleges themselves have, have advocated for fee increases uh, uh -huh. because we're, we're very we're very much a student-centered uh, system. Can you envision a point 
down the road at some point if we went through economic hard times again in California as we did in 2008, 2009, where that might have to be looked at? The the president's plan notwithstanding. Right. You know, I think it's a possibility. Uh, You know, California has these boom and bust cycles that we're all familiar with, and certainly it has, you know, horrendous effects on on the systems, in particular for community colleges. You know, these cycles have been running, you know, somewhere around, you know, five to nine years in length. And it's very difficult to um, manage um, enrollment, to manage program offerings, to manage wages and benefits during these boom and bust cycles. You never know from year to year where you're going to be. When you try and protect, protect funds for the bust cycles, you know, people you know, go after the, the resources that are available. Um, you know, we've had, you know, groups here that went without raises for, you know, seven years. That's a long time. Even in in private industry, that would be a long time. Um, So, um, you know, we we try and respond in ways that protect student fee increases, but I I don't think it's out of the question. It certainly would be down the list, I think, though, in terms of things we would look at. Community colleges are relatively um, still very much a bargain in California. So if you look at them relative to other states um, or relative to the CSUs and UCs, um, it's a you know you're getting a lot of bang for your buck. It's still a, a great education for not very much money. Talk a little bit about this difference between tuition and fees and and what that means. Well, because of the the master plan's commitment to a no tuition system for community colleges, um, by legislation, uh, you know there are no there is no tuition, um, but certainly there are costs associated with student attendance that aren't fully funded by the state, um, um, at least in a, in a discrete form. And so over the years, these fees have kind of popped up. Um, and some of them are enrollment fees. Uh, there may be technology fees. There's materials fees. So there's a variety of these fees that have popped up. Again, it's still relatively inexpensive, even you know at, at current levels. Um, but the state, when the state, um, through its funding formula for community colleges, considers um, the fees into the equation in terms of resources available. So it's not a give me in terms of over and above what the state gives us. It's part of the computation of um, what the state believes we should get. And so that's taken away as resources we already receive. Now, those fees, when they come in, do they stay here locally? Do they go to the state and then get returned to the various community colleges? How does that work? Yeah, they stay here locally, but uh, again, they kind of come off the top, so to speak, just like property taxes do, because they're also local resources. Um, And so they're considered as resources we've received against what the state owes us. Mm -hmm. One of the other dilemmas always, and it's certainly always been a dilemma in K-12, and it seems to be here as well, is that you want to increase enrollment because that brings in more revenue, but it also comes with the potential for more costs, for more faculty, more facilities, et cetera. And and trying to achieve that balance becomes a big part of the equation. Right. So one of the ways we talk about that is productivity. Um, And so we try and manage productivity, um, and we try and manage our capacity. So for instance, right now, we're running at about between 70 and 80% of capacity. Um, we obviously want that to be more effective and efficient. And so without adding a lot more sections or a lot more programs, you know, we can get 
um, much more effective and efficient by just increasing the number of students in existing courses and, and that are offered. Um, and so that's one of the things we're pushing right now in terms of marketing. Um, if you're listening and you want to enroll, come on down. We have room for you. So, um, but but that's one of the ways in which we balance that equation of needing to grow because the state funding formula rewards us for growing and that's one of the only ways we can get additional resources but at the same time wanting to remain effective and efficient in the resources we have and what if any other restrictions in terms of how those state funds can be used do they have to be used strictly for instruction can they be used for facilities are there, as, as there sometimes are with money that comes from Sacramento, are there restrictions? Well, there's lots of restrictions, and California has one of the most restricted environments in terms of community colleges, and there's quite a bit in statute about what we can do and can't do. Um, by law, a minimum of 50% of our um, general fund resources must be spent on direct instruction, and that's pretty narrowly defined as classroom instruction. So, for instance, counselors aren't included in that. Uh, librarians aren't included in that. Um, so that's really... Uh, teachers in the classroom. And that actually goes back to an old law from the 1950s that was more focused on K-12, but has been kind of a relic mm -hmm. left over in community colleges. Um, in addition, we have what's called a full-time faculty obligation, and that's also based on um, our FTE, and it's a requirement that we have so many full-time faculty per um, uh, FTE um, and so that is a requirement we have to meet as well. So, and those two are loosely tied together. Um, and there's other types of restrictions we have. Um, a lot of the money we get from the state is what's called categorical money. So it's program-specific money that has to be spent on either one or a group of programs, like disabled students' program, programs and services, for instance. Gets, uh, we get a large sum of money. Most colleges get a large sum of money to support disabled students or students with um, different abilities, and um, that specifically has to be spent in those programs. Um, so most of our dollars are restricted. Um, about, I, th I think, 81% uh, of Napa Valley's budget is wages, benefits, and restricted resources. So that doesn't leave a lot for, for discretionary items. Is there a difference in the revenue that is received from the state for students that are working towards a degree versus those that have come back to really get up to speed in a particular subject or looking at it from a vocational perspective? Is there a difference in revenue depending on what the students are there for? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's three levels of funding depending on not the type of student, but the course itself. So there's credit funding, non-credit funding, and what's called enhanced not-credit funding. So credit funding are your traditional classes primarily focused on getting um, uh, either an AA degree or a transfer degree to be able to go to a university level. Those are currently the highest funded classes. It's somewhere around $4,500 a, a full-time equivalent student. Uh, non-credit courses, um, a lot of the things like maybe a... Uh, uh, some ESL classes, English as a second language classes, some um, kind of not transfer level courses. Those are funded at about half uh, what the credit courses are. And then we have this newer category called enhanced non-credit, um, which has been funded kind of in between the non-credit and credit, which are primarily vocational type um, prog uh, courses leading to a, a short-term certificate. And in the governor's budget that was just released this month for next year, he actually is bringing those that funding for that group of courses up to uh, full credit funding. So 
that's good news for community colleges because, um, as as I'm sure you know, the vocational courses actually cost us the most, right. and we've been getting the least amount of funding uh, in some ways for those courses. So bringing that up to par with credit classes is going to be helpful to, to managing that balance in cost versus benefit. Given how precarious this is, or so it seems from year to year in terms of the governor, whoever it might be, and the governor's budget, and the legislature's involvement, etc. Talk a little bit about the planning process that you or, or any community college has to go through, not always knowing where that funding is coming from and how much of it is going to be coming. Yeah, another good question. You know, so it's it's a little bit of a tightrope. And I think, you know, in community colleges, we call ourselves, um, you know, CFOs or CBOs, chief business officers. And, and we're either accused of being too conservative, um, not often too liberal. I, I try and walk a, a little mid, middle of the road um, line in terms of, you know, looking forward. And I think if you're doing good work, you're really looking at three years. You're listening to the state economic forecast. I just came from a budget workshop in Sacramento last week week um, where, you know, we started to hear about how long um, is this boom cycle going to last? What are some of the influences? When can we start seeing a decline in in capital gains revenues, which is kind of one of the first trends you start seeing going into another recession? Um, And then ultimately, when does that affect our uh, apportionment from the state? So we're constantly looking at all these factors and doing these what-if scenarios, best case, worst case, um, and really trying to be as, um, you know, as accurate as possible. But, you know, there's so many factors that come into play, many of which, most of which we have no control over, um, that we, the best we can do is really just try and plan for a variety of these scenarios and, and hope we've identified a close one. What is your sense of, and, and it's certainly a huge question mark whether anything will come of it, and if so, how long will it take? But what is your sense of this proposal that has come from the president, and how might it affect uh, community colleges in California? Well, I mean, I think it's a wonderful, it's it's wonderful. I mean, as someone that's been committed to community colleges for, you know, almost 20 years, you know, I think, and if you talk to students that ever attended community colleges, and I actually did uh, as an undergraduate as well, um, people uh, really uh, appreciate the value of a community college education. They feel that the experience is in oftentimes better than what they receive at, at a university level. Um, and it's really given them confidence to continue and either in a career path or onto a, a higher level degree. Um, and so I think uh, when you look at salary data, you certainly see the value of community college degrees and and you know, secondary degrees from that standpoint in terms of earning power uh, over time. Um, And so many students don't have access um, because of of the cost. And, you know, books are another issue um, uh, that are expensive for folks. So we've been trying to come up with alternate plans um, in terms of book leasing, uh, book grants, those kinds of things to help um, underserved students be able to, you know, afford uh, some of those costs as well. So I think overall, um, when you consider the amount of workforce that's going to be needed over the next 20 to 30 years, um, I think it's a it's a wonderful proposal. I think in terms of California, 
in particular, it won't have as much of an effect because we already do have free tuition. We also have what's called Board of Governor fee waivers uh, for students within certain income thresholds. Um, they get fees waived as well. Um, so really, their only costs, um, and not only because they're substantial, are book costs and living expenses. Um, average units taken at Napa Valley College are around nine. Full-time is considered 12 to 15. Um, so many students are working um, their way through school. I worked my way through school. Um, and so this might enable students to be more focused. And we know that students that can attend either either community college or university full-time are more successful. So I think that's an important outcome as well. Those that are taking maybe eight or nine credits because they're working a substantial amount of time, but they are working towards either a degree or a transfer degree or whatever. How does the funding formula affect them? Are they considered part-time students at that point, even though they are working towards a, a degree? Yeah, no, um, they're still considered full-time. Um, well, they're considered part-time. Uh, full-time is generally 12 units. For financial aid, uh, it may limit how much financial aid they can get in terms of federal Pell Grants. Um, and so, um, I, I would say mainly students are working less because they can't afford to pay for all the fees or the books, um, and they need to work for living expenses. So um, I think there's a variety of factors that influence why a student uh, uh -huh. is taking less than a full load. Uh -huh. You mentioned before that the vocational courses are often the most expensive. Talk a little bit about why that is, so people understand. Well, for instance, if you look at our nursing program, um, a nursing program costs somewhere between fifteen and seventeen thousand dollars per student uh, per FTE. Um, we get forty-five hundred dollars for this from the state for that student. Mm -hmm. Now, on the flip side, we have some courses that will cost less. And so as an institution, um, we have to balance the offerings so that, um, generally speaking, we're averaging somewhere uh, around what we're getting from the state because we really don't have additional resources coming in. We, we're very dependent on those state resources. So um, we're in some cases, in most cases, we have to limit the amount of students in the vocational programs because of that cost. Um, if we were receiving more of our actual costs in terms of state reimbursement, we'd be able to offer, um, you know, open those programs up to more students. Um, but right now, these programs are fairly limited just because of the higher costs. Um, uh, the other thing that sometimes restricts them is our ability to place students uh, in internships or clinicals, depending on the nature of the program. Um, and so both of those um, have an influence over those programs. What say does the state have in terms of new programs or additional programs that the college may want to add to its existing programs? So um, AB 1725 um, really defined what were primary roles of faculty and what were primary roles of uh, administration, essentially. Um, and new course development is a primary, one of the items that's um, a primary role for faculty. So all new programs, courses, um, start with faculty through a curriculum process locally. Once it's made it through that process at the college level, then everything goes to the state chancellor's office for review and approval. So we don't have um, independent authority to offer any course or program. Everything is coordinated through the chancellor's office. How cumbersome does that make <laughs> it to sometimes move forward with, with new things? Especially um, given how fast, whether it's technology or, right. or new programs or new offerings, 
I mean, that world moves pretty fast. Right. Uh, you know, it, it can be cumbersome. Um, could it be worse? Absolutely. But I think, <laughs> um, you know, it does take about six months to move things through process. And when you think about the mission of community colleges, the fact that we are local institutions that are supposed to be responsive to local right. needs and industry, it's hard to do that sometimes when we've kind of got this bureaucratic element that we have to travel through. On the flip side, we also want to ensure the quality of, of what we're doing and what others are doing. So I think that's the, the good side of what's happening. Um, do we wish it was faster? Absolutely. <laughs> Talk a little bit about what else is involved in, in your area of administration and administrative services beyond the funding that we've been talking a lot about. Well, I think the other elements we look at, um, in particular I look at, are technology um, and facilities. Um, and so, unfortunately, without the passage of the most recent um, bond attempt, you know, that really does limit our ability to improve our, fa improve our facilities, um, bring our technology up to current standards, um, and ultimately that does affect our, our the teaching and learning that happens here, and that's unfortunate. Um, it doesn't mean we're still not doing good things here, but you know we have folks on either side of us at Santa Rosa and Solano that have had very successful bond measures pass. Um, and you know there are competitors. You know students can travel just as quickly to um, Santa Rosa if they live in Calistoga, or you know Solano in Vallejo or Fairfield if they live here in Napa or American Canyon. And so we want to keep our students here. We want to be able to offer them state-of-the-art technology and facilities. And so we really need to invest in our, our local um, our local college to be able to do that. And so um, <clears throat> the board's asked us to look at, um, you know, what could we have done differently in terms of moving the last bond forward so that when we go back to the community and ask for these important resources, um, there's a better understanding by the community of why these resources are important and needed for our students. Does it matter in terms of funding or in terms of anything for that matter, where the students come from, because this is an issue that has come up, uh, came up during the bond campaign, I remember, that, well, you know, we have students here that are from Solano or students here that came from Santa Rosa because there was a particular program, of course, that they wanted to take. Does that matter in any way? You know, it, it doesn't matter in terms of funding. Um, just community college districts, unlike K-12, are open. Um, right. And so there's no, while there are district boundaries that are defined, um, in terms of funding, there's not a, a review or analysis of where your FTS um, derived from. So we, we, we know for our own internal analysis sure. um, and marketing efforts, but it's very um, usual and normal for community colleges to serve a large amount of students from outside their physical district. So students travel to multiple um, colleges, they may be attending multiple colleges at the same time based on availability of courses and the time frame they need them. Um, many students attend multiple community colleges over the course of their their uh, college career. Um, so it's just kind of the, the norm. Um, and so I think the idea of focusing on that from a from a local funding standpoint is a little bit of a misnomer because, you know, Santa Rosa is supporting some of our students from the Napa Valley, Solano supporting some of our students in the same way we're supporting some of theirs. Um, we want to be as attractive to uh, all of these students, um, as those colleges are. Um, and so the, one of the ways for us to be able to do that is um, through local bond funding. Right. Has there been an effort made on the part of the state to limit offerings within certain geographic areas? 
In other words, things that, you know, Napa may offer, Solano may not, or Santa Rosa may not, because it's close enough for a student to go there instead of having two programs that are similar close together? Yeah, good question. So um, the state hasn't formally done that. Um, um, but we, I would say we do it informally with each other. Um, and so, for instance, um, Solano College has recently opened a new auto tech program that literally is probably four miles from American Canyon. Would it make sense for us to just start a new auto tech program here? No. Um, and so we try and look at program offerings. I think the credit offerings, the transfer level pieces um, are going to be fairly consistent at every college. Um, certainly, we try to have the best faculty um, and think we do. <laughs> um, but uh, I, so I think at that level, it's it's fairly um, an even playing field. But I think especially on the vocational courses where there is that additional um, investment and, and cost, um, we do try and, you know, not duplicate efforts unless it's in a high demand area uh, like nursing, for instance. Mm-hmm. For instance, we have a respiratory therapy program here that we um, share with Santa Rosa. So through distance uh, learning, um, we we have students from both colleges in one program. So there are areas like that where we also um, collaborate. Mm-hmm. To, to what extent has technology been helpful in, in allowing some of these courses to expand? For example, the Santa Rosa example. Yeah, well, I think uh, that's actually a good example of where we actually need a new new setup, a current setup. The setup we have is very old. It's not dependable, um, but it's an $80,000 investment to get that classroom um, kind of distance ed ready in mm-hmm. terms of current technology to make it stable and, and reliable. Um, and so that was something, for instance, we were looking at bond funds for. Um, so uh, technology plays a big part, um, and... Um, and so our ability to collaborate, uh, and also, you know, students don't want to come to school, you know, three days a week anymore. They want to be able to do a lot of their work in the middle of the night, you know, at 11 when they wake up because they haven't gone to bed till 2 in the morning. You know, they don't want to come for an 8 a.m. class anymore. And with technology, they don't have to. And so a lot of what um, we're looking at and others are looking at are, is this idea of hybrid courses where um, co- some course content is available to students ahead of time. They don't have to come to course to to look at what would typically be considered lecture materials. They can do that in their own time and space, um, but really they're going to come for the interactive part, discussion, tests, et cetera. So I think and technology plays a big role in, in supporting that because the technology has to be current and reliable in order for us to, to um, continue to expand those offerings in that way. Once that investment is made in the technology, are there economies of scale that come out of that? Now, admittedly, the technology is always changing, and what works today may not be you know viable in three years, five years down the road. Right. But are there potential economies of scale that can come from that? Well, sure, because if we don't have, right now, we are impacted because we don't have any more classrooms available to us between 8 and 10 in the morning. Um, or let's say 9 and 11. Um, so if we were offering more hybrid classes, we could actually double the number of classes we were offering during that time frame um, and make it more make more courses accessible to more students. So, so it does matter quite a bit, and it does really provide us a more productive um, physical environment as well as a technological environment. Talk a little bit about the economic consequence of, of bringing more high school students into the college taking courses here. Right. So we're trying to do a little bit of both. We're trying to um, 
offer more courses at high schools Mm -hmm. um, as well as um, bring more high school students into college courses as is um, appropriate for for their level and age. So um, recently the board passed a a policy that uh, waived uh, fees for for high school students to allow them to get college credit. Um, You know, as um, you know, sometimes students in high schools, they, they run out of classes, they get bored. Um, this really enables them to stay engaged um, while earning college credit. And so um, this is an area that we're going to be uh, really pushing in, in the Napa Valley. Um, and it's being requested by the high schools. So we think that there's a need. Um, in addition to the kind of those higher level classes, we're also offering things like college success courses um, at high school to really give students a sense of what they can expect and how they can um, you know, be successful, whether they come to Napa Valley College or go on to a CSU or UC or private university. So um, we think there's great value in, in bringing high school students um, right. into college as early as possible and get them adapted to the environment. I mean, it's been something that's been part of the process for New Tech, for example, for right. many, many years. Now it's expanding to other high schools in the area. Right. So we are we are looking at every high school in our district, um, all the way up to St. Helena and Calistoga, uh, in terms of offering some of these courses. So, um, and <clears throat> some of these we're just starting to offer. We may not have a lot of students this first time, but we're committed long term to them and and hoping that students and families see the value in students participating either at their local college or or coming here. And what funding level are they? Local oh, high school. I'm and sorry. what funding level is the college reimbursed from the state on on those high school students? So, if they're credit classes, they'd get the tip. We would get the same forty five hundred dollars mm-hmm. um, for that. FTS as we would for any other student. Mm-hmm. Talk about uh, finally with the bond issue not passing this time out. What some of the economic challenges are very specific to Napa Valley College over the next year or two. Well, I think there's a couple. One has to do with the facilities side, and you know we identified the college identified uh, prior to my arrival almost uh, a billion dollars of unmet need uh, in terms of either. Um, maintenance, long-term maintenance, so things like new roofs, et cetera, um, new HVAC systems, um, renovated classrooms and new facilities, um, to technology, which probably has, um, if we look at new um, ERP systems, which is kind of the administrative software that manages kind of the whole house, um, those can cost anywhere from four to $12 million. Um, and then our annualized need for refresh of, of labs and, and computer desktops, printers, et cetera, runs about $400,000 a year. So those are all in my needs right now. We have labs with five, five plus year old computers in them. Um, <clears throat> and it's difficult for faculty to be able to update curriculum um, if they're not working in a smart classroom and using current technology. And, and the big challenge is, you know, students coming from places like New Tech and other high schools are now used to working with emerging technology or current technology. They don't want to come here and go backwards. Um, they, they won't. Um, and so for us to continue to be competitive and for them to stay engaged with what we're trying to deliver, we, we have to have current um, and emerging technology available. And, of course, uh, the fact that technology gets cheaper doesn't really help because it doesn't get that cheap. <laughs> no, because it, it doesn't get that cheap. And we certainly try and take advantage of it wherever we can, um, even 
purchasing refurbished equipment, if that makes sense. Um, and so we try and get an eco- economy of scale. We do bulk buying, all those kinds of good things. But it's just expensive because we're buying so much of it. And the life, you know, the life, um, useful life of some of these things are, are very short anymore, you know, three years and and they're done. And people laugh if you're still using it, you know. So, um, <laughs> and students laugh. <laughs> students laugh, they do. Um, and so we're, we're still trying to fully implement Wi-Fi, you know. And, you know, Wi-Fi is ubiquitous. You know, it was ubiquitous in Siena 15 years ago in the little village in Italy. But we're still trying to do it here because of funding restrictions. So um, we have to have those resources to be able to serve the community better. Janine Hawk, Administrative Services, Napa Valley College. Thank you so much for coming in and spending time with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. You're listening to Napa Valley College Now on NapaBroadcasting.com, the online radio home of Napa Valley College.